Well, it is in joy, indeed, a great joy to be with you here this morning. Shirley is with me. Reed came as well. And we bring greetings from uh, our other two children, little Susan and uh, Arthur. And uh, they, we all as a family, uh, with great love and appreciation to God, uh, bless, ask God to bless this congregation. Now, I do have a confession to make as we turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 14 down to verse 30. But there's a little confession that I need to make to you. Uh, This was the second string on the football team, the second string sermon title. It was not my first choice. Uh, My first choice, uh, there was a gasp in the family when I announced it, and I was told that if... uh, if I used that title in the bulletin, that they would not be coming with me because it would embarrass the family. And I said, what's wrong? It's a perfect title. Build back better. I mean, it's perfect. (laughs) Well, hometown synagogue it is. And it's good to see you all. It's a joy to be with you. And Brother Nick and Carol have shown such kindness. Thank you, brother. And uh, it is... uh, He is a faithful friend indeed, and on this occasion, it's our honor to come and celebrate with you God's kind blessing, God's gracious provision of this fine hometown historic church building. Much planning, much prayer, much service, much sacrifice went into finding property, went into laying plans, went into raising up this structure to the glory of God. God's great work of providence unfolded before us. We were busy doing something, but it was not just for us. It was for others in the future life of the congregation and for, indeed, the entire community and to be a blessing as the gospel flowed in this building and out this building, indeed, to the entire world. And the good folks at Covenant Oak Ridge were, by God's gracious provision, gifted to do what truly was and continues to be a great labor of love. We give God praise for that. This place where you sit, this Place is a tangible and physical form of divine blessing on the one hand and Christian love on the other. Our text this morning was chosen with this in mind, this historic occasion. It might strike you as a little strange as a, as a particular passage. You know, I was asked by a friend when I told him what I was coming to do, oh, now are you preaching on the tabernacle or are you preaching on the temple or is it the great temple above? What what are you going to be preaching on? And I said, well, it's going to be Luke 4, so have a look. We are finite creatures, aren't we? We are bound by time and space. That's the way God has made us. Therefore, it is no sin for us occasionally to stop and to look, and to listen. Even in public worship, to see and notice what God has done and what God is doing among us. 
But a special occasion like this is a little out of the ordinary, isn't it? You know how much I love serial expository preaching as your pastor does, marching through passages, marching through books, carrying the congregation along as we develop an appreciation for the flow not just of a few verses or a chapter, but an entire inspired book of the Bible. And indeed, all of redemptive history as it unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. But it's good every once in a while to do the equivalent of reaching in the pantry and pulling out the uh, spiritual equivalent of Jane's crazy salt and uh, spreading a little bit of it on the salad bowl of life. And so that's what we're doing this morning. So let us turn to Luke 4, beginning in verse 14, and hear the inspired and inerrant word of God. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt, you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city 
and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word to us. Let us pray. Oh, our Father, this is a strange passage. It's a delightful passage on the one hand, and it's a hard passage on the other. But we pray that you would open your word to us, that the spirit that inspired it would now illumine it, that it would be applied to our thinking and feeling and living, not only now, as we sit in this wonderful building, but also every time we come or lift up our eyes and see it. May your word bear good fruit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's hard to preach to a building. It has no eyes. It has no ears. And with a little allusion to the tin man, it has no heart. A building doesn't have a heart. It may echo if you ding the pulpit. That's a good, nice echo. But a building has no heart and it is not moved as a structure. Unless there's a karst underneath it which the top caves in and then all sorts of strange things begin to move. They, they began to move one morning or before we got to the office. And, and, and I mean, it was strange. All the, all the walls were cracked and the ceiling was bumped down and, and there were cracks in the floor and everything seemed to center around one place and there was a hole and you could look down in it. But preaching to people in a building, now that's a different story. You and I can hear, we can even see the word of God as the reformers sometimes said concerning the sacraments through the elements that God has appointed and we can see And hear the word of God in this place, can't we? By God's grace, we can hear and take it to heart. We can be touched of mind and heart and life. We can be moved, even the frozen chosen, even Presbyterians. We can be moved in heart and life. We can hear and we can be changed from the inside out. Not by the building. Not by the chair on which we're sitting, but by the Holy Spirit who works in and through the word and beyond it as he wills. Many years ago, when I was growing up in South Carolina, my earliest memories of church do not involve my father at all. He was never there. Daddy had multiple sclerosis and He couldn't get in the building. It was one of those old stock Southern Presbyterian uh, blueprints that they had used to build the building. And for some strange reason, the sanctuary was up on the second floor. And and you had to go up about 30 steps to get there. And he could not go up two steps in his own power. And there were no deacons big enough or brave enough to roll him up backwards in the wheelchair up that number of steps. And so he sat at home. And he read his Bible and he prayed for his wife and for his son as they went to church. One day the congregation realized the building was getting a little old and a little small. 
And so they bought a piece of ground at the other end of downtown. And the architect who was in the congregation remembered my father. And he drew a plan for a wonderful new church building that was all built on the same level. And I will never forget the day we drove to church. And Mama and I lifted the wheelchair out of the back end of the car. And we pushed him into church. The step was only about that high. We could handle that. And as we rolled him in the sanctuary, there wasn't a dry eye in the place, as you could imagine. That was a much more suitable meeting house for the full congregation and was a blessing to the people of God. And that, that idea is the whole point of this place. Look around. Look around. This is one sermon where it's okay to let your eyes wander a little bit. Look at the floor. Look at the ceiling. Look at the windows. Look at the walls. We are here, not because this building is an end in itself. We are here because it exists for the blessing and benefit of those inside and the blessing and benefit for those presently beyond her walls. It is an aid. It abets the good news of gospel work in our lives, in our family, in our community. And so it is right and fitting for us to listen to what the Lord says and what is recorded for us in the inspired scripture of what was, what was done to him and what he did in this passage. And the proposition of our sermon this morning is an old children's song. The church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is not a resting place. The church is the people. Now, after our meeting today as you're driving home, if you're under the age of 10, just get your mom or your dad to sing all of it to you and show you the hand motions. And that will be fun. The first point is the church is not a building, strictly speaking. Did you notice in our passage, Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30, that not one time, it does not even hint, much less command, a particular local church structure. It simply says, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in all their synagogues and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was there and he went in. Now we know from church history, we know from archaeology some, some basic facts about early synagogues and as they have evolved in the modern era, it's different. But back then, the place looked a lot like this. It was very simple. The main focal point was where the congregation gathered. And they gathered to hear the word read. They gathered to hear the word preached. They gathered to hear the word sung. They gathered to hear the word prayed. And as the Old Testament Mosaic Law appointed, there were particular sacraments, as we call them, Means of grace, signs and seals of God's great covenant of grace uh, that they enjoyed together. 
These hometown synagogues commonly fit with local architecture. They didn't stand out like a sore thumb and they weren't the coolest, most gaudy thing known to man. We don't need any more crystal cathedrals. We've had it with that. Where it's an end in itself and a showpiece and a focal point. Provision was made for the word to be heard by all in attendance. But there was no regulative principle of construction for local synagogue buildings that bound every congregation. Now, once upon a time, before that point, before this passage, there was a regulative principle of church construction. The Old Testament tabernacle, for example, was exactly that. It was a tent, but it was a very special tent. God had dictated every aspect of it. It had a precise role in the unfolding opera of redemptive history. It was a very, a place of great drama. God did amazing things. Yes, the word was given. The word was read. The word was preached or expounded. But other things happen that don't happen in our houses of meeting and sanctuaries today. The Shekinah glory of God, his, the cloud of his presence would come down and dwell in that place. Uh, he would do amazing, miraculous works of church discipline right then and there, frightening many of them. The tabernacle was a nursery school of religious symbolism and education. It was called the tent of the congregation in its central part, or the tent of meeting. And if you want to have a look later this afternoon, have a peek at the latter half of the book of Exodus. Every detail is given there. There's an outer court. And between that and, and the first inner layer after it, there's the, the altar there and sacrifices were made. There's an inner tent where the faithful gathered before the Lord in worship. Uh, there was a holy of holies and inner tent inside which held the Ark of the Covenant and the only approach was annual, ritual, sacrifice if God had specified anyone else intruded they wouldn't have made it alive. There were symbols woven into the fabric. There was furniture like candle stands and, and showbread. These things were placed there at the command of the Lord. All of them pointed to Christ all of them pointed to Christ and his great salvation and to his church. Then there was the Old Testament temple. And if you thought the tabernacle was impressive, oh my, the temple. It was grand. It was glorious and all dedicated to the worship of the Lord. At least that's the way God intended it. If the tabernacle was a nursery school, the temple was the university of higher religious education. It was solid. It was permanent. It had this feeling of an eternal dwelling among men. It would remain there, they thought, unshaken and unmovable until the day of judgment. The Queen of Sheba paid a call. Do you remember? She came to see it and to see the glorious gold and gild with which it was lined. It became a religious 
the religious focal point of the life of Israel. Something of a sacrament in the Davidic covenant, a sign and seal of God's great covenant of grace. It pointed forward to the incarnation. And one day the incarnate son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he would be brought in. Now David had been involved in its construction quietly in the background. He wanted to build a house for God and God said, no, I'm going to build a dynasty, a house for you. Your son will build this house for me, but you may not. And so David did what he could. He visited all of the Home Depots in the Near East. He collected all the materials necessary, and he had it all prepared so that Solomon's job was more simple and straightforward. It was a delight. It was a point of pride. You know, we can become just like that in our attachment to buildings, can't we? Be careful. Be careful. Don't let the devil take something good and make something bad out of it in your heart. That pride would fester among the people of Israel. It would metastasize and turn the temple of God into an idol. As strange as it is to say that. It became a snare to their souls. They thought as long as that was standing and it would always stand and therefore they were safe no matter how they lived, no matter what they did, no matter what desecrations of God's word occurred in that place. But we know that nothing stands against God, does it? Nothing stands against the Lord, and so it all came down in the Babylonian captivity. But God had bigger plans. He had plans to rebuild. He had plans that it be expanded. He had plans that it be ready in this kind of sweet and sour, ironic way. It would be what he had commanded, but not be what he commanded. They would have twisted it and gilded it to suit their own taste in their own desires. They would fill it with raw politics of the worst sort rather than religious devotion. Triumph and tragedy filled the place. But it was there when a little baby was brought in who was born by a great miracle of God. That baby was dedicated, was circumcised. Prophecy was made over that child in that place. And then he re-entered as a little boy. And he knew more of the Bible than they did. (laughs) And then he stormed in as a young man, having received his full and clear calling. And he drove out the money changers. He had to do that twice. Money is a It's a great source of evil to us if it's not devoted to God's good work. Oh, the Sanhedrin would see to it that he was crucified outside its walls, but they they, uh, plotted and hatched a plan inside. Biblical synagogues, as we saw in our passage earlier, they were neither the temple nor the tabernacle. They were simply meeting houses, simple places of worship according to his word. What happened in them was important. They were word-centered spaces. 
You see, the true meaning is no longer found in the fabric of the building any longer. The temple and tabernacle, they, you could point to things as if they were almost an end in themselves, but they really pointed beyond themselves. Like the signs out on Pellissippi Highway, they point to Knoxville. Those signs are very nice, they're very clear, they're reflective at night, but they are not Knoxville. They point to Knoxville and show us what's ahead. The tabernacle and temple pointed to something greater, pointed to Jesus Christ our Lord, pointed to the great salvation that he would accomplish and bring, its application to us, the joys and spiritual blessings that would overflow in our lives as his Holy Spirit did that great work of application. The temple and tabernacle pointed ahead. But this building, it doesn't do that And it shouldn't do that. This building was built to do one thing and to do one thing well. And it is excellent at that task. It is a place where the people of God can worship the Lord and learn about the Lord and serve the Lord. It is a place that is dry that is visible, that is accessible. We can hear each other. We can see each other. There's no shadow on the hymn book so that I don't know what words to sing. It is a great place. It is everything that God had providentially wanted us to have. Its meaning and usefulness is found in what happens here. That reminds us that this world is not our home. We are only passing through. This building aids us as we travel along the way, doesn't it? It's comfortable. It's convenient. Christ is the focus. Christ is the meaning. Christ is the purpose of what happens here. What, he is what matters in our relationship to him. Not the walls, not the roof, not the concrete. Now, on one level, given that we're finite creatures, it's not surprising that we grow attached to a place and to things, is it? We, We have a little solid nature ourselves. We work, we pay, we build, we live, we love, we worship in this place. And so we grow attached to it in deep ways. You know, in the Scottish Highlands, it's very much like that. Uh... The Scottish Highlanders were quite poor, and so a number, just a handful of basic architectural blueprints were drawn up, and they were made available to any congregation that needed to build. They could help by hauling the rock. There were actually baskets that they wove, and the women wore them on their back. The men would go down to the shoreline, and they would ship out stone that had been exposed by the waves, And the women would carry it up the hill. And then other men were masons and they would lay those stones with mortar and they would raise the structure following the blueprint design. Every economy was made. There was even a standard color that all the churches used inside. There would be no green, there would be no cream. It was all a glowing, golden 
light brown. It was named Church Stain. And so when you went into the church, that little golden glow would catch your eye walking in the door. And you would go, oh, I'm in the house of God. It's wonderful. And then you would take a breath and you would smell it. There was a church smell. It's still there today in Scotland. It's not incense. It's mold. (laughs) It's damp in Scotland. Everything is infested with it in church buildings because they're Scottish. We're cheap. And so they only heat it during the service. If you're lucky, they heat it during the service. And so the mold grows, and it has this smell to it, and people associate that with the reading of the word and with the preaching, and and they remember weddings and baptisms and professions of faith and welcoming new members and burials and funerals, and all of that is wrapped up in that amazing feeling in the place. We human creatures are very strange. The church is not a building, it's not a steeple, it's not a graveyard, it's a people. It's an assembly. Verse 16 tells us, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and it was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. It's an assembly that hears the word. He read the word, Isaiah 61, the first two verses. He read it, and then he gave a summary of its actual fulfillment in their presence. He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All along in Isaiah, under inspiration, it had said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And they looked forward through the misty prophecy. Who is that one that's coming? Who is that anointed one? Who is that Messiah, the Christ, who will save us? Who will bear our sins? Who is he? And there he was. They were all attentive. They were impressed. What he declared to them was the heart of the gospel. But you know, merely hearing is not enough. The worship of the true and living God by an assembly of his people in itself is not enough. The church is an assembly, it's a people, but it is most basically a people united to Christ, wed to him by faith and by the Spirit. Those that have been regenerated, changed, transformed in their children, and they gather together and they sing praise of God, not outwardly. They don't just read mechanically. They don't just hear a sermon by rote. It is the real heartfelt worship of God that they experience together. You see, he is the mediator who reconciles them to God. Listening is not enough. They must hear and they must believe. By faith and by the Spirit, they must be one with him. And that's a work that Christ alone can do do in us as he pours out his Holy Spirit. These ones in Nazareth on this occasion were not united to him. Verses 28 and 29 make it very clear. They hated the application. They should have grabbed their their clothing and they should have torn it and they should have said, you know, we must repent. 
We need to follow the Lord. We should receive this word rather than rejecting it. But they hardened their hearts. They clenched their fists. They dragged the Lord of glory out the door and were going to throw him down the cliff. Now we're running over time. We have food waiting. Please don't do that to the visiting pastor this morning. But you know they did it to the Lord of glory. It was the greatest sermon in all of history to this point that he had preached. He gave them first dibs on the fulfillment of himself as the mediator, as the Christ who came to save them from their sins. And they wanted nothing of it. They hated it. They hated him. And if it were not for his divine power, so that he could elude their grasp as is described in verse 30 by a great miracle of God, then all of salvation history would have been overthrown. They were worse than the Gentiles of Sidon and Syria. They were worse than the wicked of the wicked whose hand of judgment God was upon. The great prophet Elijah came and relieved the widow in Sidon. And the great prophet Elisha came and it led to the healing and salvation of Naaman, the Syrian. But the congregation in Nazareth, so blessed with the presence of the Son of God incarnate, they wanted him dead. So as we celebrate in this place, let me give you this one last word of application. Remember God's kind provision in this place. He used many here. He used many that have already been promoted and gone to heaven to see the Lord face to face. God has provided for us. Has he not blessed us richly and profoundly? You should have that thankfulness and joy in your heart for him. And so stir yourself up to worship and serve him all the more in this place. You've maintained and, and you've cared for this place. Well, because of our time in Scotland and repeated exposure to mold, I, I can, I can, I'm, a, I'm a mold detector. I can smell it a mile off. And there is none here. It smells great. Never forget to attach your hearts to Christ all the more every time you walk in the building. Come and worship him. Not yourself, not your agenda. Not focusing on what's going to be for lunch afterwards or what the struggle of the next week will be at work. But guard yourself. Come ready to worship. Bring your full mind and heart before him. Stick to his word like glue. <laughs> Hold to it fast in every aspect of your life together. For you see the days are evil. They are. But let us continue in this place. Let us continue with it being a house of faithfulness and love and devotion together to the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we thank you for your provision of this house, this meeting house where we can gather. We thank you for what happens in it. We thank you for every soul here. And others who will yet come, we praise, O oh God, 
you for this provision that they might hear your word and trust your son all the more. Help us to be faithful in that calling and to follow Jesus all the way. And we'll give you the glory in his name. Amen.